everyone. Welcome back to Here to Apologetics. So glad you joined us today. Um, I have Kyle Lander of Christian Idealism and Ben Watkins of Real Life Theology. We're going to be discussing the argument from consciousness. Um, so Kyle, Ben, thanks for joining me. How are you guys doing? I'm doing good. I don't know. Ben, I think he's ben. frozen. <laughs> I think Ben, unfortunately, as we were just talking off stream, and I think as soon as I pressed like start recording, Ben froze and Ben's gone. So he'll reconnect we'll in a minute. Um, we okay. can do introductions, Kyle. So do you want to like introduce yourself? Um, yeah, my name's uh, Kyle Ounder. I uh, run the Christian Idealism YouTube channel. My main focus is the uh, the philosophy of mind, although I do philosophy of religion as well. So I do both, but mainly philosophy of mind. Consciousness is definitely one of those topics that. Um, I love talking about so this will be an interesting discussion with ben that's great and ben I'm glad you reconnected um and we're just doing like if you have a brief introduction to say like what you're all about yes um uh thank you for having having me on um uh sorry about the te technical difficulties there um so my name's ben watkins i'm a host of real atheology a philosophy of religion podcast where we explore questions in the philosophy of religion from a non-theistic um, perspective. And so uh, philosophy of mind uh, kind of kind of overlaps in the philosophy of religion. So the topic of consciousness is one that um, really interests me in my work in the philosophy of religion, but um, in a, in a more broadly than that, um, I'm interested just in philosophy of mind. And so the uh, mind-body problem is one of those questions that uh, keeps me up at night. It's one of those things that I always think about, and I'm always really excited to continue reading more and more about discussions that have been had on the relation of how mind fits into the world. Yeah, it's super exciting. Um, and I think everyone who's joining us today, our format is we're going to have brief intros of about 10 minutes each. So Ben's going to go first and Kyle's going to follow. Then we're going to have about 50 minutes of just live discussion um, and then closing remarks. And then we'll have a little bit of Q&A at the end. Um, but Ben, whenever you're ready, I know you have slides. You can put those, share those, uh, share the screen and we'll pull that up and we'll get started. Okay, let me share the screen. There we go. Awesome. They should be pulled up. All right. I'll start. Whenever you start talking, Ben, I'll start the 10-minute timer. Okay. So I want to discuss tonight the argument from consciousness and um, provide some objections. So I'll go ahead and admit at the start that I didn't really know what Kyle's position was tonight or what uh, um, form of the argument of consciousness he was going to be presenting. So I just put together a little presentation of how I understand the argument from consciousness and how I approach um, each of the three strategies. So the first strategy for the an argument from consciousness I want to talk about is a likelihood. I want to discuss likelihood, likelihood forms, Bayesian forms, and abductive, or what's called inference to the best explanation forms. And so the first is the modest likelihood formulation. And it, it, it argues that the general fact that there are conscious beings is more likely given theism than atheism. Um, and the Bayesian uh, format uh, kind of ramps this up a bit. So the likelihood um, for formulation doesn't tell us what to believe. It just tell us tells us what direction we should believe. If that if that makes um, any conceptual sense, it uh, 
it, it tells us uh, what, uh, how we should update our beliefs given some observation. But Bayesianism wants to, add, wants to infer um, based on our total evidence. And so there, it uses what's called Bayes' theorem to try to um, calculate whether some hypothesis is more probable giving some observation. And it does that with um, the Bayes factor, which is um, comprised of what we just saw, the likelihood functions, um, and prior probability. And so if the uh, Bayes factor is greater than one and the prior probability is one, um, or greater than um, the left-hand side of this equation will be greater than 0.5. And so if it's greater than 0.5, we can truly claim in a, in a um, strongly robust probable sense that um, theism is more probable because of that observation. Um, and the third form of argument is an abductive form. And this is kind of a, a, a strange form in the sense that it's kind of a, it's, it's a form looking for a theory. Like, is it, um, what constitutes a best explanation? So is it the most likely explanation? Is it the most probable explanation? Um, how do we cash this out? Um, but I won't try to settle any of those questions tonight. Um, and I'll just take an abductive version to be the idea that theism is probably the best explanation of facts, like the hard problem of consciousness. Um, so first-person conscious experiences cannot be entirely characterized in physical terms. That's the hard problem of consciousness. And so if God created consciousness, then that would sufficiently explain the fact um, that conscious experiences cannot be entirely characterized in physical terms. And that explanation is better than any alternative alternatives. Therefore, probably theism is true. So these are broadly the three forms that I have in mind when I try to characterize my objections to them tonight. So the first objection I want to raise to the argument from consciousness is an implication of what's known as the weak anthropic principle. So conscious experience, um, I want to argue, does not favor either theism or atheism. So it's false, the likelihood function, that the probability of observing consciousness is greater um, given theism than it is given atheism. I want to say that the weak anthropic principle states that we must be prepared to take into account the fact that our location in the universe is necessarily privileged to the extent of being compatible with our existence as conscious observers. So what does all of this mean? Um, what it means is, is that when we try to go about collecting evidence for our observation, there is a fact that's induced by our existence as observers, uh, an implication of the weak anthropic principle that biases um, what we will observe. So this is called an observation selection effect. Um, so let me give this an example, give an example of this uh, from Arthur Edington. So he um, describes a situation in which you're using a net to catch fish in a lake. And you notice an observation about all the fish you catch. You notice that they're all greater than 10 inches. And so you think, hmm, I wonder if all of the fish in this lake are greater than 10, 10 inches or if only half of them are. Well, that observation clearly favors the hypothesis that all of the fish in the lake are greater than 10 inches because that's what you always observed. 
But then you notice a strange fact about your net. You notice that it has holes that are 10 inches large. So that means that fish that are smaller than 10 inches will be able to swim right through. So you've learned a fact about how you've gathered your observation that biases what you will observe. The net that you use biases the size of the fish that you'll see. Well, something is similarly happening happening with consciousness. The fact that we are conscious observers. When we go out in the world to see if there is consciousness, we will always observe consciousness. The probability of observing consciousness, given the weak anthropic principle, is one. And that's regardless of whether atheism or theism is true. So this undermines other um, design inferences as well. So, and it also undermines atheological design inferences. So, to give an example, the observation that you, the observation that the universe contains matter, doesn't favor theism or atheism if that observation is made by observers who have material bodies. Similarly, the observation that the universe is orderly does not favor theism over atheism if the existence of the observers making this observation requires there to be order. And finally, the observation that certain cosmic values are right for life does not favor theism over atheism if this observation is made by observers that are themselves alive. So the weak anthropic principle and the fact that we exist as observers induces observation selection effects that undermine several forms of design inferences. So that was the first objection. The second objection I want to say want to lay out is the argument from physical minds. And I want to kind of turn the tables and say that, no, there are particular observations about conscious experiments, experience that are more probable given atheism than theism. So if we want to avoid the observation selection effect that is induced by our existence, we need to look at more particular facts about consciousness that are not implied by the weak anthropic principle. But when we turn our attention to these more particular facts, I'll argue that those facts favor atheism rather than theism. The first observation is that all observed mental properties like consciousness, personality, and other psychological traits are correlated with physical changes in embodied brains. The second observation is that minds and their psychological traits are physically related such that the probability of a mind having certain psychological traits is determined by genetics. And the third uh, observation is that the complexity of mental capacities in any animal species is correlated with the complexity of their brain states. So now I can create likelihood functions of my own and say that these observations are more likely given atheism than they are given theism. So if we understand um, the inference to the best explanation as um, the, the inference to the most likely hypothesis, then I think I can make a really strong argument from physical minds here. So to give the first observation, although mental activity is correlated with a physical change in embodied brains, when we damage a brain, we can impair mental functioning and psychological capacities like personality, memory, or the capacity to have any conscious experiences at all. But why does this physical damage to a brain have any effect on mental functioning? 
So these are the kinds of ways that I want to defend the idea that um, the best explanation for these particular facts is that they are um, physically dependent facts. So the third objection attacks the Bayes form, formation of this argument. And I want to say that atheism is simpler than theism because it has a higher intrinsic probability. And so I'm arguing here that supernaturalism is not intrinsically more probable than naturalism. Theism is intrinsically less probable than supernaturalism. Naturalism is intrinsically less probable than atheism. Therefore, it follows atheism is intrinsically more probable than theism. The fourth objection that I want to lay out is that the best explanation is not is that yep so you could out there ben i don't know if like your internet was being neutral a monism that yeah because noon is the best oh. we lost you there for a minute ben um so we missed you right when you went to like the neutral monism thing so we're at 10 minutes maybe you want to just like briefly bring this up and then we can go to kyle's opening can you hear me now yeah we can hear you Okay, well, I'll go ahead and end it right there because I think I've put the objections that I want to mention um, at least on the table. The only other slides that I had remaining were like kind of recapped what I just said. Um, Maybe, but it was basically those four. Four. Yeah, I was thinking we can go, go over ahead. those in our discussion if you want. But same thing with my presentation. Yeah, but for sure. yeah, yeah, because awesome. the neutral well, monism stuff. Time. Yeah, but the neutral monism stuff we can discuss that after. Um, okay, so now I'm going to present my presentation. Hold on, let's see here. Share screen. All right, let's see here. Hopefully this will be right. Um, okay, you guys see that? Yeah, I just pulled it up. Okay, excellent, excellent. All right, I'm going to do a full screen. Okay, that's good. Okay, so does consciousness point to theism? Well, I'm going to present near the end of this presentation, what I call the argument from a mental world or idealism, because that's my sort of view on uh, the relation to consciousness. So obviously before we get to does consciousness point to theism, we first have to actually define consciousness, right? So consciousness is mental activity in itself. Mental activity is conscious if and only if there is anything it is like to have such mental activity in itself. Another definition we could put forth would be this. Mental activity is conscious if there is something it feels like to have such mental activity in itself. Um, I don't like the words to use to feel, however, so philosophers of mine typically just define consciousness as anything it is like to have mental activity of itself. And so this is from philosophers such as uh, David Chalmers and Thomas Nagel and those sort of guys. I don't think Ben would, I think Ben would actually agree with this definition. So I don't want to go too much into it because there's other things I want to sort of get into. But, but yeah, this is just defining consciousness, what it is, so that we can sort of understand and grasp it. So the theory I hold to, which is idealism, basically says that the fundamental nature of reality is consciousness. So experience ontologically is mental in type. And so matter, what we call matter, is comprised of phenomenal states or contents of consciousness. And so matter would also be you know, mental in type as well. Um, so the first thing we need to really do is to compare the theories of consciousness, right? So when investigating whether consciousness points to theism, it, it's important that we recognize the theories, right? So this can be physicalism, dualism, panpsychism, or cosmopsychism, neutral monism, and then of course, you know, idealism. Um, and then the two general just criteria we want to use is, of course, simplicity. 
If everything is equal, we should prefer the simpler theory, except the theory which postulates the fewest number of unnecessary assumptions or less complex primitive entities. And then, of course, the explanatory power, where we want a theory that explains the most with the least, the one that can sort of uh, unify and explain things uh, where there's not as much bruteness involved and there's less explanatory gaps involved as well. Um, so on simplicity, of course, I would say that idealism is simple. Um, the idealist needs only one kind of basic entity, an experience in mind or some experience in mind. So all that exists is, ex is experience simpliciter. Now I'll get more into the idealist view of matter in a moment, but I just wanna point that out there. And of course I would say that monism is also very simple right? Because it only has one kind of entity which grounds all of reality. Um, I guess a, a view that I hold, um, just to clarify, is a sort of dual aspect monism where there's one irreducible substance that is termed in both physical and mental ways. Um, again, I'll get more into this in the discussion, but I guess you can sort of view it as like two sides of the same sort of coin. And so it's seen that idealism is a type of monism. It would bypass, you know, certain problems like the interaction problem and the pairing problem. And, you know, all this, there's no hard problem either. So <laughs> that's another advantage to... Uh, this sort of view. Now, there's other considerations to take into account. So this is just a comparison of the two views. Um, so on physicalism, all mental changes has a sufficient physical cause. And of course, there are no mental differences without a physical difference. And in mind, it necessarily supervenes on this physical. Now, I also want to point out here that there's another thing that's important here where you have non-foundational minds and all non-foundational physical things depend on a foundational physical substance or you know, some sort of like necessary substance. So both views are going to have to posit contingency and necessities in their ontology, right? And then on idealism, it's the same sort of thing where all mental or, or private minds change has a sufficient transpersonal mental cause. I'll get more into this in the discussion, but you can basically think of a transpersonal mental cause as any mental cause that is outside our, like our own private minds, right? So there's still a distinction between our private minds and the external world. Again, we'll get more into that discussion to help clarify, but I just want to point that out that it seems like right here, um, because both views have contingency and necessities, then they're both going to be symmetric, right? Um, so neither view is actually going to be more complex than the other. Now, there is a symmetry breaker, which I will point out, and this has to do with on what the issue of what matter is, right? Um, so I call this problem, and this is called, this is sort of a new issue in the philosophy of mind, is basically the problem of positive properties. So when we say an object is physical, there is no way in which we can describe it where we refer it to re refer it to as an object without reference to mental experiences or properties. A non-idealist needs to show there are qualities in non-mental or physical properties or objects that are intrinsic to the objects themselves. We can say that there is nothing more to such physical items than a world of mental properties. And so there's no need to posit this physical substance that is beyond the mental experiences. All things physical seem to just be positive properties of mental experiences. And so on idealism, I guess, just want to point out here that our experience of the world is simply just what the world is, because the world is experience. The colors, sounds, smells you're experiencing right now is the real reality or the actual world, right? So the implication is, if that's the case, then all reality is in consciousness, but reality will be made of the qualities of experience. Right. And so I guess the final point here is just that matter is an abstraction of mind, which means that the existence of matter or, you know, any world outside consciousness is not an empirical fact, but it's just like an extra assumption in the explanatory model of any sort of non-idealist position. And so when we apply Occam's razor, and since idealism doesn't seem to require this extra assumption, then idealism has a simple, you know, a simpler ontological 
uh, explanatory model than the alternatives, right? Um, so that's that's the symmetry breaker there. Now, this is a sort of quote, this is sort of highlight the sort of problem. Quote, the defined characteristic of explanation by abstraction is a progressive movement away from Edmund Herschel's life world and the concreteness of direct experience. First, one posits a world devoid of qualities, and as such devoid of concreteness too, from concreteness is a quality of experience. Then one progressively loads this world of properties that entail no direct isomorphism to experience. So we have the mind, which you know represents our mind. Then we have the material world, which represents like our perceptions of it, like what we you know directly experience. But then if you're if you're not an idealist, you have to posit this extra world that is somehow beyond experience itself. And that I think that's a theoretical cost there. Um, now, I also want to point out um, an issue with arbitrary limits. So in our theory of consciousness, we want to make sure we are not positing fundamental limits to the nature of reality. And so we can sort all theories of reality into two categories. Either the, th either the theory entails the simplest foundation or entails some additional complexity. So I would say that by, by the tool of simplicity, the theory with no arbitrary limits is simpler because it has no bruteness and therefore more probable. The simplest account of the foundation explains the most complexity since then all complexity is then explained by a simple root, which is something with no arbitrary limits. And finally, the uniformity dependence, which is that every complex array of limits, everything that's limited um, depends on something else, right? And so if the foundation has no limits then it doesn't really need an explanation in that sense, right? Um, and a simple non-arbitrary, non-limited foundation could be the ultimate foundation of everything, including you know all the material complexities of our universe and its limits. So I guess my point here is that when, when comparing theories, we want to make sure that we're not positing fundamental limits to the foundation of reality. Um, and this will become relevant to, I guess, my my final uh, slide here, which is the argument, my, my argument from consciousness. So there's two stages. Um, so this first stage argues just for idealism. The second stage argues, goes from idealism to sort of theism. So stage one and premise one, I'm sure Ben would agree with this. Um, the cause of close the universe, which is every event which has a cause, has a cause of an event which is the same in type. Premise two, the irreducibility of consciousness, which is that the mental is subjective and qualitative type and cannot be reduced to or identified as an, an object, an, an objective and quantitative phenomena. And then finally, premise three, which is this, you know, mental causation where mental events can cause physical events. Um, and so the conclusion for all this, when you combine causal closure with the irreducibility of consciousness, and then that consciousness can actually have causal powers, you get a sort of idealism where everything, because everything's causally closed, and because the only thing that could really exist in such a world would be the mental, right? And it's because mental uh, things have causal powers, then it would seem like the only thing that really exists is the mental world. Um, and so anything in the universe, you know, would just be mental, right? So that's that's stage one of the argument. And in stage two of the argument is just sort of identifying, okay, what, what's the best theory of idealism, right? So if everything is mental, if idealism is true, then reality is constructed by a mental foundation. So I just want to point out here that premise four just is talking more broadly. So this is compatible with any version of idealism, even like non-theistic forms. So the foundation can be either be a singular mind or it could be a plurality of minds, right? Depending on which version you hold to. Now premise five, that might, okay, good. That might be uh, the, the most uh, controversial premise might be premise five, which is that the simplest version of idealism is one in which the mental foundation lacks fundamental arbitrary limits. Um, and then I would argue that the simplest version of idealism is one where there's only one mind that grabs everything, and this mind has uh, no arbitrary <laughs> limits. And so therefore, the simplest and most parsimonious version of idealism is one in which the mental foundation is a singular, unlimited mind. And so I guess categorizing, categorizing this argument, I'd probably put it in the abductive camp. So 
obviously um, it's not you, it's not really, it's, it's, it's not a Bayesian argument. It's not a likelihood argument. It's more of an abductive argument. So uh, if I had to categorize it, that's what I would put it in, but this is my argument. Um, I appreciate it. If Ben would give me his thoughts on this and we can discuss this more in the uh, discussion. So anyways, that'll be the end of my presentation now. Hold on. Oh, there we go. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you, Kyle and Ben. Appreciate you guys making slides and acting, not acting, but looking so smart with your slides. Um, <laughs> yeah. So what we do now yeah. is we have like a live discussion. Uh, so we have a live discussion for about 50 minutes. Um, so it's really up to you guys, wherever you want to take it. Um, so I'll pop myself off the screen here and I'll come in if need be, but I'm sure you guys aren't going to be like consulting each other or anything. Um, so yeah, if we go for about 50 minutes, I'll come in and we'll go to closing remarks and Q and a, um, so leave it to you guys. Cool. All right. Um, so yeah, it's interesting so, that you brought. Okay, who wants? To, you want to go first, or you? I'll just let you go first, and then. Uh, yeah. Well, so, uh, yeah, because I'm just characterizing questions at this point. Um, yeah, yeah. It seems like um, I see two deep dis dis disagreements um, here, and so one I think we can resolve, and the other I don't think we we will be able to resolve. So. Okay. I'll start with the one that I think we'll be able to will be able to resolve, and that's the solution to the mind-body problem. So first, I yeah. want to know how you characterize the mind-body problem because it both it sounds like we're both just neutral monists, and you call yourself an idealist, and I sometimes call myself a physicalist. Um, but at the end of the day, we're both monists, and we just cash yeah. that out. So I think this is a disagree. Like, granted. This is a super big disagreement to resolve a you know, resolve our disagreements yeah. on. If we have the yeah. same answer to the mind body problem, but cash it out into different terms, that's awesome. That's a win. Yep. So I want to start there. Um, the second, uh, the uh, disagreement that I don't think we'll be able to resolve is that theism implies some some form of dualism. That monism is just not going to be compatible with the kind okay. of theism that most, um, most yeah. theists most. would find attractive, like perfect being theists. So okay. if we're going to depart from that. I think awesome. we could, I actually think we could solve both problems, but we'll, we'll I awesome guess we can this. discuss. So yeah. Maybe I'm I've, I've more optimistic. My, yeah. so. I put my chin out there. So by all means, knock, knock, knock me out on both. Yeah. Of <laughs> yeah. But that, so, so first I wanted to see how you characterize the mind-body problem, and I want to see, you know, kind of your solution to it. Okay, so I think the mind-body problem is obviously, I think you would agree with me, which is a pseudo-problem, where basically it's a problem that we, that's sort of a consequence of the way we did metaphysics, right? So how I typically, how I typically like to look at it is you go back to Rain Descartes, right? And he's not him specifically, but he was ma the main influencer of making this hard distinction between mind and matter, right? Um, and that's where you get the problems within modern philosophy, which is, well, if mind and matter are two fundamentally different substances, then how can they interact, right? And that's typically uh, the objection that you'll get to like a sort of substance dualism, right? Um, I think my solution is just don't be a substance dualist, right? <laughs> <laughs> be a monist, right? Just say basically that you have to, so there's two things you have to do. Number one, you have to change, sort of understand what consciousness is. And then number two, I think a way to solve it is to understand what is the nature of the external world? Like what is matter actually made of? Like what is matter fundamentally, 
right? If we can, so in my view, obviously, because I'm an idealist, the way I cash out the problem is, okay, you know, we, we've made this hard distinction between the external world that's somehow beyond experience and then our eternal world, which is experience. So my solution is just, okay, let's just get rid of the non-experiential world. And we just say everything is somehow termed in experiential terms or mental terms, I would say, right? Um, it could be compatible with neutral monism. It, de it just depends on what you mean by neutral monism. So um, there are objections that I have to neutral monism, but those objections only apply if you make neutral monism as a competitor to idealism. So you have to basically preclude idealism in that sense. But um, that that's how I solve the problem, where basically I just <laughs> I just talk about the whole world, like both our mental experiences and the world out there is just all just one category of things or two sides of the same coin, essentially. Um, I don't know, what's your perspective on the mind-body problem? Um, okay, so do we, uh, I feel like that the mind-body problem was the first, first bit, but I feel like you were mm -hmm. um, also focusing on the second objection of that theism kind of implies this dualism. So I want to say, I guess, say, say something about both. Um, so the idea that um, theism implies substance dualism, I don't think we have to look particularly to Descartes um, for this idea, you know, this radical distinction mm -hmm. between mind and body. I certainly agree with you. I don't know if I'd say it's a pseudo problem. I would say that it's a, it's a real, it's a real problem that needs solving, but it's a pseudo yeah. problem. I think in the sense you mean in the sense that look, it's because we have these two traditions and because the effects of these two traditions are that they gave rise to this problem. And so if we just yeah. do away with the mistakes of those two traditions, there is no problem. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's what I think you mean by a pseudo tradition. And I, yep, and I totally, that's what, yeah. 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 So Totally, totally on say, totally on the same page with you there. Um, but the idea that drives um, the or the intuition pump um, the, uh, for the idea that theism implies substance dualism is that the idea that God is a supreme mind on His own. If we just say there's God and nothing else, God is a mind. But then God creates a world separate from Himself. So. So the idea that drives is that there, there's God, and then there's the world he creates. And these are distinct from one another. And that when we combine the two of them, that either we have implausible implications, or we end up in some sort of pantheism that is just... Uh, seems more, you know, more yeah. closer to atheism than it than it seems to theism. <laughs> and so, so what do I mean by that? I have to I have to cash out um, these claims. And so, I think the defensible version of, of idealism for theism is what um, Bishop Berkeley famously put forward: the idea that we are the contents of minds God, of God's mind. And so, the idea that. Uh, the physical world, as we perceive it, is in some sense illusory. And so if a tree fell in the woods and there was no God, then no one would hear it because there would be nothing there to perceive. And so it's God's, the, the mental perceptions in God's actual mind that sustain the world at any given moment. And that there's a very real sense in which the material world is illusory. 
And so I find that implausible. Um, I realize idealists just disagree with me and that the strength of their arguments comes on pushing back against that intuition. I want to say that there is this real physical world. And by physical world, what I mean is that there's this world that's describable in third person terms that does not require anything about our first person subjective experience in order to be true. So the contents of science, the contents of physics are describing something real, a real feature of reality that is not dependent on a first person quality, something that we would associate with a mind. And so I think, so I just, I take it for granted that there, that there is a physical world, that physics describes something objective and that by being objective, it doesn't depend on anything subjective. And so right. that's what puts me, that's why I, even though I consider myself a neutral monist, I would consider myself a physicalist or a non-reductive physicalist or a non-reductive monist. Because I want to say that there are these features of reality that we describe in physical terms. And by physical terms, I mean third-person terms that are true, independent of any first-person you know, subjective experience. We don't need to know what it's like to be a bat to know the laws of motion or to know, you know, Einstein's theory of relativity. We don't, we, we're saying something true about a world that is entirely independent of conscious experience. And so that's why I'm a neutral monist, because I think that there's just, there's ways to describe, there's two ways of describing the same one world. And there, you know, there's only one world, but there one one coin, but there's two sides of the coin and you can't, capture the entire coin unless you describe both sides of the coin. And when I'm looking at one side of the coin, I can't see the other side of the coin. If I want to see the other side of the coin. I have to turn it around such that I can't see the side that I was just looking at. And so there's just like when I'm talking in mental terms, I can't just also talk in physical terms. That would be like looking at both sides of the coin at the same time. And when I look and when I talk in mental terms, I can't just or when I talk in physical terms, I can't just talk in mental terms. Again, it would just be like trying to look at two sides of the same coin. At the, you know, yeah, just you, you can't do it. But why why I lean to call myself um, a physicalist is because I think that there, there, there just are these features of reality um, that are independent of our conscious experience and that. Conscious experience, as we, we understand it um, in the philosophy of mind, is something radically emergent from this neutral substance. Um, now, this there's. I'll go ahead and admit at the, at the beginning that I'm going to confuse some people because though I'm not an idealist in the philosophy of mind, I am an, an idealist in epistemology. I'm a Hegelian. What do I mean by that? I God, why why would I use these terms? I know I wasn't I wasn't here when the terms came came along. I'm really sorry, um, but an idealist in epistemology is the idea that um, the world is rational all the way through. So that there's this kind of identity between knowing and being. So that they're two sides of the same coin. And so we get the terms idealist from the German idealist tradition. So if you were to say, "Oh, I'm an idealist in the philosophy of mind," and someone was like, "Well, what's your view?" and you were like, I'm a transcendental idealist. You'd be like, no, no, dude, you're thinking about Kant and epistemology. 
It's just a different way of using the term idealist. I know it sucks, yeah. but so in that ger that German idealist tradition, I'm what's known as an absolute idealist. Um, so Kyle mentioned earlier in his opening, you know, this idea of having to posit this extra mental, like how do we know about this? That's Kant. That's the the problem that plagues Kant's uh, famous transcendental idealism. How do we how do we understand these things in themselves? Um, if there's, you know, we're relegated to the, the world of noumena, but there's a world of phenomena. How does the world of noumena get into the world of phenomena? Absolute idealism tries to resolve those issues. So, again, I think the first issue we can resolve. We're both neutral monists in, in the strict sense of philosophy of mind. The second objection, I, I'm not so confident we'll be able to resolve our disagreement here because... I'm going to want to, as uh, th uh, thinking, putting on my theist cap, I'm going to want to preserve the intuition that God created a world separate from himself, something that's distinct. They're not the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, but now you take a not so popular route. So I'm super excited to hear why this disagreement exists. Why is it that you part ways with someone like, William Lane Craig or Richard Swinburne or Alvin Plantinga, when they really, you know, these, these theistic thinkers obviously think there's a lot riding on substance dualism being false. Yeah. So I guess the first thing is, um, I think that, well, there's two things. Number one is of course the model of God that I hold to. And then number two is this distinction between what we call necessities and contingencies. Um, so to resolve the disagreement, I, guess would be that every view, whether or not you're a theist or a naturalist, you're going to have to posit both the contingent and the ne necessary. Otherwise, either you have to say that everything's contingent, which I think that's a theoretical cost, or you say everything is necessary, and that's another theoretical cost on the other end, right? Um, so I guess my first question to you is, do you think that there is a distinction between something that's contingent and something that has necessary existence? So I think that's a great um, question. So that's a modal distinction. Um, and so um, I want to, in traditional philosophy fashion, um, say I don't know, that I haven't thought about that question enough. Um, but if the chips are down, if I'm making arguments and I'm thinking about it, I do think that contingency and necessity are valid distinctions that we, uh, our modal distinctions um, refer to truths in the world. So if I say that, you know, if I make some claim that it could have been the case that X, Y, and Z happened, I think it's true that it could have been the case that something happened. Or if I said that, it, you know, something could not have failed to be the case, it was necessary, I think that that's true. Um, I know that there are arguments against this kind of modal realism. Um, I, and so that's why I preface by saying I don't know. I'm not too familiar with those, argu those arguments, but I would just insist that these modal distinctions are real. And I think that that's common ground that all parties to the discussion um, can concede. Even if at the end of the day, they're modal anti-realists, certainly the language helps us get at the truth better. Um, we, we they, they get us closer to the truth. They're at least useful in that sense. 
Okay. Um, Zach, can I give me like one second? I gotta let my cat out. <laughs> Is that okay? Yeah, you're good. I can um, destroy Ben while you're gone. Okay. So. <laughs> no, I'm there you go. I have oh, five so I totally know this struggle. Like this struggle is very real. Like, when a cat wants to get out, they will get out. When a cat wants to be let in, <laughs> it can get even worse. <laughs> All right, I'm back. That's funny. All right, well, good, good, good ta cat talk, Ben. I'm gonna. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, so yeah, I think. I think when we make that distinction, I think that can show you that, okay, well, obviously there has to be a distinction between the foundation of reality and whatever it produces, right? It may not be an ontological distinction, right? But there still has to be some sort of distinction. I guess another thing I should point out here um, is that my, and this goes to my second point, which is, I think it was, I can't remember, but anyways, my model of God, okay. So I reject the, cre I, I reject the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. Okay, which basically means that I think when God creates the world, it's basically through God's own mental contents, right? God is not, it's not like God just created something out of nothing. I don't even think that's a coherent concept, right? So whatever God creates is going to be still ontologically relevant to God's nature, right? It doesn't mean that therefore we, we share in the essence of God, right? Because we're not necessary. We're still contingent beings, but we are still going to share some ontology to God in the sense of the fact that we're mental beings, right? So when God creates the world, it's not like God created this whole material, you know, universe that's outside of, you know, this Cartesian category we call matter, right? Rather, God created the world through his own mental, through his own mentation, right? Um, sort of, I guess one analogy, I don't really like this analogy, but one analogy you could use is we live in a simulation, or probably a better analogy would be that we live in the, the mind of God or we live in God's dream, right? That's the, that sort of idea, right? Um, so while it's true that God did create a public environment, right, as Swinburne would say, because I know he presents like an argument for why we, we would need Swinburne's a dualist. Well, I know, but... <laughs> yeah, I know, I'm messing, I'm messing with you. But, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> yeah, but, but the cool thing about Swinburne is I think his argument could could equally applied to idealism because all that's required for his arguments to work is that God creates a public environment that's compatible with an idealist position. Right. Um, so I don't have to, you know, as an idealist, I don't have to posit that God created this material substance. That's, you know, beyond consciousness or whatever. I could just say, well, the material, some, the, the stuff that God made was, is itself mental, right? These mental properties, right. And that we experience every day. Um, so that's why I would say because of that, because of those reasons, I don't think that theism, at least my model of theism does not imply substance dualism. Now there are other models that may imply it. I, 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 I grant you that point, right? Especially. So if you think that God created the world out of nothing that might imply it, I'm open to that possibility, but I think my sort of model of God isn't going to really imply substance dualism. Right. Um, so that's, I don't know. I know. Hopefully, we can resolve that disagreement. I don't know, but <laughs> so we'll see how um, it goes. I mentioned Swinburne is a dualist, so there is a Christian idealist tradition. So I don't want to pretend like there, there, this yeah. this tradition just doesn't exist. Um, who should we be reading in that tradition? Who is your favorite well, Christian idealist to turn to? I'm putting you on the spot. You've uh, got probably, five seconds. Uh, 
to answer. The only that the only one I can think of would be Keith Ward, although he has some weird views on the resurrection that I don't agree with. But yeah. but yeah, I, no, I do admit that. that. I was thinking of so the fact that you said that. Yeah. I was like, all right, we're on the yep. same page. <laughs> um, so um, the other intuition I'm putting on my theist hat um, here, um, the because you want to say that. Uh, Theism doesn't imply a kind of form of substance dualism and that, you know, matter is just a different aspect of God. Or so, Are you saying God is the neutral substance? Is, I just uh, make- well, I, I would say that God, if you're talking neutral substance, yeah. So if you're saying that neutral substance is the ground for reality, well, then, yeah, God is the ground okay. for reality. So, yeah. No, 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 that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Um, yep. um, so... Because I think that in the theistic tradition, and I, I find this plausible, is mm-hmm. um, God created the world separate from himself. We've, we've already mentioned that. But um, also the idea that God is not physical. God is not material. God is not made of anything. Um, right. And so that, 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 that intuition is certainly threatened by something like an idealist view because it's that's going to want to say no. Or just any modest view in general. So, no, there, you know, God is material in one sense. He might only be partially material, or material matter might only be one aspect of God's essence. But God is, in a sense, matter. And so, another, I, I, again, I think that this is a strong theistic intuition is that there was once a time when God existed. And there was no other creation. It was just God. And, yeah. and God was pure mind. Um, but then he did something and created something. And that something that he did, that, that act of creation, created something unique, something that did not exist before. And so that that just that's a hard demarcation. There's just that once you have that act of creation, boom you've got something distinct from God. And so there's just no way out of this substance dualism because you want, we, like you said, we want to preserve that God's mind is in some way analogous to ours. You know, he created this different world, but we're like God in the, in the mental part of it, but we're entirely unlike God in our material way of it. And so that when we die, we die a material death, but we survive yeah. mentally, and so that you that, that, that well, you yeah. don't have that distinction on that realism. So, I mean, okay. So, I guess I should clarify. Well, okay, two things. Number one would be what the body actually is, what the body represents. So, I'd say the body is itself the appearance of our mind, right? Kind of like the avatar. If again, I don't like. I don't really like those. Analogies, but that's like the best way I can do it. Another another point I want to, this is my second point, which is the distinction between what's called uh, something that's geometric and something that's not geometric, right? Now, why is this important? Well, all matter, as we can, as we know, is geometric in some sense, right? Now, I think that God is not geometric at all, right? I think that whatever the ground of reality is, I think it's non-geometric. In fact, I, I sort of take the view that all all of geometry itself 
is dependent, it has a contingent nature, and it's ultimately it's contingent upon something that's non-geometric. So if you take that sort of distinction, well, you could say that, well, yeah, while it's true that God created a geometric world, right, that geometric world still, that's like kind of like the, um, how should I put it? So basically, the world is itself the geometric representation of God's thoughts, but God himself is not geometric right um god can reveal himself as geometric like he, he can he can come down as a human but the actual essence of god is not geometric right because all geometry is ultimately dependence upon a non-geometric foundation right um and this is something that um joshua rasmussen brought up in his debate book with uh philip leon and philip actually agreed to the argument great book <laughs> good plug yeah yeah um, so that's that's sort of my view where I think obviously I agree with you that there are important distinctions between God and the world, right? But I don't think that the distinction have to be so uh, you know distinct that you're having to create separate ontological categories, right? I think it could still be one ontological category. It could still be one uh, you know reality that's all mental, right? This, this sort of monism. But you can still make distinctions within that modism. So you can still make a distinction. So, so we, uh, 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 I want to uh, uh, press on okay. this point. I think this is this is where our um, um, disagreement really lays. I think this is where the disagreement okay. between is very deep and and potentially irresol irresolvable. So um, I want to ask right now: Do you think that there is an ontological distinction between being alive and being dead? Um, I would say no. Um, so that because that's my answer. So I'm a modest as well. Okay. So I would <laughs> okay. Because I was, I was, I was just making sure it wasn't like a trick question. I was like, oh, I got to think. No, about it. probably no, not. No, no, yeah. no. I, those okay. are the worst kind. Those are the worst questions. Being okay, technically yeah. right is the best kind of right, and trick questions are the worst questions. So, um, uh, I don't think there is is an ontological distinction between it. But I think that that comes with an implication. I think there's a cost to that. Remember you were saying earlier, like there was, you know, things about simplicity, there was factors about contingency and necessity, and that when you go into one of those camps, like someone have, have theoretical costs. And so I think a theoretical cost here by this move uh, can you hear me? I know about it. it just kind of cut uh, off for a second. You broke up a little bit. Yeah, you're fine now, but it was breaking up a little bit. So okay, yeah, okay, fair enough. So, okay, yeah. Um, if if there is no ontological distinction between life and death, I don't think we can make any sense of the idea of surviving death. So this idea that we can continue on. Past, past that. I think I think that's what that's a huge worry. One of the big questions in the philosophy of religion is, do we survive our deaths? Well, if we take this modest position in the philosophy of mind, I think that has a cost, and I think that cost is is that no, mm. we do not survive our deaths. There is no ontological distinction between being well, alive and being dead. That that is interesting um, because I, I okay, so I guess I should clarify. Um, so when I, I think what happens when we die is that our consciousness is still there, but our our basically our personalities, our egos and stuff that goes away basically. 
Um, it's called ego death, right? Um, you can experience this if you take psychedelic drugs, right? People will start to lose a sense of their self. Now, do you lose consciousness? No, right? Because as an idealist, I think that that's all that really exists is consciousness, right? So consciousness doesn't go away. But what can go away is your ego, your personality, um, your sense of self, right? So in that sense, then, then yeah, if you're talking about ego death, well, then no, our, our ego basically goes away when we die, right? Now, is it, is it the idea that we're going to stop experiencing? No, I think we're going to continue to experience things. However, again, your ego, like you as a person, you as an individual self is not going to be around any longer when you die, right? Um, so that's sort of my view. And I think it's pretty consistent with this idea that, okay, well, do we survive our deaths? Well, it depends, right? If, if you're talking about consciousness, well, then yeah, consciousness survives death. But if we're talking about the ego, then no, it doesn't, right? Um, so there is that distinction, th that important distinction you have to make. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. What do, what do you what are your thoughts on that? I guess I don't want to get too sidetracked from. But no, yeah. no, no, no. This is great because I think this is this is like um, even if our disagreement is irresolvable, we've we've identified it, and this is where we can have deep, productive discussion. Um, about these disagreements. Yeah. So this, this, it's win-win, I promise. Um, <laughs> so um, I would want to say that uh, we just can't have our cake and eat it, and eat it too here. Um, because we're all, uh, right there, we, we made the distinction. That, like, no, there's no ontological distinction between life and death. And there's no ontological distinction between God and the world. It's all just one big, um, you know, on, uh, modest picture. And so I think mm -hmm. that once we once we broaden our split, we see that those those distinctions have been completely lost. And so we're saying we, we can draw the distinction. You know, there's no ontological distinction between um, us being alive and us being dead. Is there an ontological distinction between us being God? And not being God again. So again, like God created a world separate from Himself. He created individuals that are not Him. Um, they are ontologically distinct. But on this modest view, no, we are we we you know we are God in a very real sense. There's it's all the same, regardless of the ontology. Yeah. So it's just to me that seems like it's it's a hard sell um, for me as an atheist. I'm not a theist. Like I can only imagine how perfect mm. being theists or Christian theists are here and going. They're like, I I don't know how I just don't know how to make sense of it. No, yeah. Um, well, there is a important distinction within uh, orthodox, orthodox, yeah, orthodox Christianity, which is the essence energy distinction. So I would say that we are part of God and His energies, right? In fact, that's the whole point. I think one of the big uh, Things with Christian with Christian. I'm, theism sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt. So when you say energies, oh. I know it's super rude to interrupt you like this. But <laughs> no, it's good. Energy, um, just so that we're clear, like, uh, what 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 are you saying? Like actual inner, like physical energy measured in joules. Like, um, what do you mean by energies? Because that's a, you know what I mean. Like, what do we yeah. mean by that? Like, we are God's energies. I feel like that we gotta unpack that claim. No, yeah, no, yeah, that's a good point. So basically, the energies of God is basically the creative power of God, 
right? Um, so think of it, I guess one analogy you could sort of think of this where you have the sun, which is represents the essence, and then the rays represents the energies, right? Now, there is still a distinction between the sun and the energy. So I do think that like God has spontaneous effects. So when God creates the world, it's more spontaneous. It's more indeterministic as you as we could say. And if it's indeterministic, then that would make that would make God basically create the world a contingent world. So whatever God creates is not going to be necessary that that world exists, right? There's still contingency involved, right? So we're a part of God in that sense. We're a part of God's creative process. We're part of God's, um, basically God creates like a mental uh, environment through there, right? So everything's still mental. So it's not like God is creating this, this substance that's beyond mentation, right? Because all that God is required to do is God only needs to create a world of experience, right? So if God only needs to create a world of experience, only needs to create so, some sort of public environment, well, I would say, well, why does God, you know, God doesn't need to create a whole material universe, you know, that's independent of experience or independent of consciousness in that sense. So that's that's what I would say, but, uh, but yeah. So for your view, does something like a modal collapse um were you, and I know I'm kind of throwing this, and this is, this is my mm. curveball for the debate. Um, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> um, the, the idea be behind a modal collapse is that God is necessary. And so that um, if God is necessary, he's devoid of any contingencies. If he's devoid of contingency, then he couldn't have done other otherwise. And if he couldn't have done otherwise, then he's not perfectly free. Yeah. That's the idea of a modal, modal collapse. And so like th this is another cost of a monist view that it just rules out a um, divine yeah. libertarian free will. Um, is that um, an objection it, that worries you? Um, I think it does, but only if, okay. So I guess I should also clarify. There are different views of monism, right? So you have existence monism, which says that, well, there's only one, fundamental objects in the world and like all these different uh distinctions within nature are just illusions right or you can hold the um which is what i hold to which is the priority monism view where ultimately everything comes from one source of nature right um and so i lean towards i hold to the priority monistic view where yes monism is true in the sense like everything is ultimately made of the same kind of stuff which is the mental but there is still a distinction between the initial mental item, which is God and, you know, the necessary nature versus the contingency. So I would say that as creatures, we are part of the contingency. So whatever God creates, we are part of that, right? Um, we're part of the creative process, right? But, but again, there's still one uh, substance in reality but there's still a distinction between the priority thing, which is God versus everything else that sort of breaks up from God. Um, so that's, that's what I would hold to. It's a little different because it avoids modal collapse, right? Because there's still indeterminacy and stuff. So God is not determined to create a world because if he was, then that would, you know, involve necessitarianism, which I, um, I, I want to avoid that at all costs. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. This is a, uh... This is a bit of an unfair question, but no, um, uh, indeterminacy and free will. So we're, we're appealing to indeterminacy here, but, you know, I understand indeterminacy as randomness. Um, 
you know, do you have a positive view of um, what's often called libertarian free free will here in which, um, you know, we can kind you know, this single substance can kind of rise above itself in the sense of being able to determine, freely determine actions um, that are not constrained by laws within this neutral mm-hmm. world. Well, that's a good, that's an excellent, excellent question. Um, it's a rather so, over question. I know hey, it's, it's a okay. bit unfair. No, it's um, okay. It's okay. Um, so my, okay. So my view, some people consider me, some people would consider me to be a compatibilist. I wouldn't go that far, but I, I do lean towards that view. So basically I hold to what's called the soft libertarian free will. Right. Where, yes, you have free will, but it's more constrained than what most people like to think. Right. Um, for example, I could never freely choose to murder babies. Right. It's just not going to happen. Right. Because I have a certain moral nature that's going to determine. As, as a me. matter of psychological fact, it's just. Yeah. It's just yeah. not um, of the psych- of the ways in which it is true to say that it's possible you could act in this way. One of those ways just isn't. Murdering, torturing right. baby. I yeah. I feel like we're on the same page here. I feel like we've established <laughs> some common ground. So yeah. at the end of okay. the day, we can at Good. least do that. Yeah. Good. All right. Um. So yeah, that's my view. Basically, a soft, sort of soft libertarian free will. And it, again, that applies to all. That doesn't just apply to humans, but that also applies to God as well, right? So I could sort of use that to sort of explain, you know, God's um choices and stuff intentions and so um but yeah is there anything okay yeah go ahead let's talk um hard problem of consciousness so i've thrown some uh i i would consider them a few unfair questions at you just because libertarian free will is a huge rabbit hole so i'll throw an softball an objection my way um that's that's equally a rabbit hole, and it's the hard problem of consciousness. So I think that you believe that your view of idealism and the conjunction of your idealism and theism um, gives an advantage in the hard problem of consciousness. So first off, how do you understand the hard problem of consciousness? And how do you think that your view gives us an advantage in the hard problem of consciousness? Um yeah. So I feel like that's I can softball that to you, and that's because because I have a, my view obviously gives rise to our <laughs> and it's yeah. hard. <laughs> yeah. So okay. So the hard problem is basically it's an argument against reductionism. Basically says that um, you know you have these two f- different things. You have the mental first, which you describe in first person terms, and then you have third person terms. And the point is that you cannot reduce your first person terms to the third person terms. So you can't take something that's qualitative, which is our experience of the world, like taste, colors, and sounds, and then reduce them to something that's not qualitative, right? You can't take something that's qualitative and then reduce it to something that's quantitative, right? Um, you can't take something that's described in first person terms and then completely described in third person. It just doesn't work, right? Um, so that's the way, that's, that's how I see the hard problem. And then the way I solve that hard problem is just the, deny that consciousness is, is reducible. I just say, well, consciousness is itself irreducible, right? You cannot, the point is you cannot reduce consciousness to a third person terms. Um, so that's how I solve the hard problem. Basically, I just 
deny the reducibility of consciousness. So, so I think the the parallel problem for um, your view. So I have a hard problem of consciousness to solve, but your view has a hard problem of matter to resolve. So like it's like what I was mentioning before, and again, this is the uphill climb that I have have to make. I have to argue for this is that um, matter seems to be a real feature of the world that doesn't depend on our um, subjective first-person experience. So if we mm -hmm. are to believe the story um, given to us by uh, historians of science, um, you know, the methods of science since um, uh, Galileo have you know stripped away the first person experiences from our understandings of the natural world and so it's that very process of doing that that has allowed us to make as much progress as we have scientifically since the since the enlightenment and so if mm -hmm. we're to believe that, 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 that there is just that the idea that there is a material world just is a datum and that there is a problem of the external world and epistemology, but there just is a solution to it. Like solipsism just isn't the answer <laughs> to that. Yeah. You know, like it's it's one of those datums that like there just is a material world. And so while like my view gives rise to a, you know, there just there just is a hard problem of consciousness. We just can't deny, you know, you know the existence of consciousness. I think there's also a, a, a parallel problem on the other side here. We just can't deny the existence of a material world there just is a physical world and that that physical world um doesn't depend on any mental facts mental facts might underlay them they might go all the way down to atoms like panpsychists argue but but the the idea is that, that no there is this react this physical reality that just does not depend on anything mental we can make true statements about the world in entirely physical claim in physical terms. And so that's, uh, that's <laughs> not a solution yeah. to the hard problem of consciousness. That's my uh, um, response to you. Yeah. The, 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 the counter and it's an uphill climb. I recognize that, you know, that's just the nature of the mind body problem. You know, idealists, it just seems, you know, you can't describe the world without making reference to mental terms. And it's like, well, no, the, the, the physicalists are just like, no, you, you, you can't make any mental claims without talking about possible motivation and desires and, you know, certain physical respect, you know, it's just one of those things, the intuitions just pull on each side and mm -hmm. different considerations are stronger than others here. Yeah. So, it's interesting that oh, I might have forgotten what I said, but okay. So basically, that's interesting. Uh, two two responses I have to I guess that sort of issue. The first one I sort I mentioned in my opening statement, but I, I'll I won't get into that now. So I guess the the more I think more relevant response would be there is a distinction that idealists make between the external world and whatever it is that's non-mental or at least this, this idea of a material world, right? So an idealist, I can accept that there is an external world. I accept that there is a world out there beyond my mentation. The question is whether or not we have to invent a category that is itself extra mental. Now, I admit that I 
you will have to invent a category that is extra mental in the sense that it's beyond your mentation, right? That the world out there is beyond your mentation, right? So that avoids, you know, that's a non-solipsist position. So I don't have to be a solipsist and say that everything's my mental mentation, right? But I do say, I have to say that, okay, yes, there is a world out there and it, it is beyond my control, right? Now, the question is whether or not that requires me to posit a world that is beyond all mentation. And I would say, well, no, the external world is itself mentation. The world that we experience every day, is that that just is the, the real world, right? Um, the world of experience, that just is what reality is. Like a color, sounds, taste, smells, those are real features of the world, right? Um, yes, it's external. Yeah, so it is a part of the external world, but it's still mental, right? So that's what I would say. And then I guess the second response, which is what I hinted at the in the opening statement, which is, of course, the problem of, uh, I think it was, yeah, the problem of positive properties, right? Um, so I would say, I guess that there is a sort of opposite problem for the non-idealists, which is that they have to say, you know, if we say that uh, physical objects are intrinsic to themselves, like there actually are intrinsic objects, physical non-mental objects, well, then we actually need to reference those things. Um, we have to talk about matter without um, in reference to experience, right? And I don't think that's possible, right? So that's what I would say. I mean, I admit that for sake of clarity, that may not completely um, solve what you call the problem of matter, but I think the best way that idealists can respond to that is to just point that out, right? That when we talk about the external world, we are just talking about experience, regardless of whether or not that experience is uh, experienced by our minds or experienced by some universal mind. So um, that's, what, that's what I gotta say on that. So we've got five minutes left. So I want to use the last five minutes um, to talk about something that we haven't talked about yet that I gave in my opening, and that's the prior probability of atheism and theism. So this is a controversial um, issue in yep. the philosophy of religion. Um, there is uh, the simplicity of theism and atheism it does not have a happy history. Um, yep. <laughs> so I argue tonight that atheism is simpler than theism um, because it posits fewer things um, and because the... the uh, intrinsic probability of theism cannot be greater than one third. Um, so what are your thoughts on the intrinsic probability of theism and the intrinsic probability of atheism? Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah. Um, so I'm actually, yeah, I'm actually working on a long video about that soon. Um, and I will be arguing that either. Great, I set you up. Plug it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So basically there's a, <laughs> <laughs> a few things in response to that. Um, so number one, I think it's important to recognize that um, in order for atheism to be a theory, we actually have to build a theory of atheism, right? So you're going to have to say stuff that's going to preclude theism, right? And if you do that, then it seems like they're going to be an equal footing, at least initially, right? That Both atheism and theism are going to be an equal footing. Now, I know in the opening statement, you did mention how, um, I think it was... Theism requires supernaturalism, but atheism, oh yeah, atheism was compatible with supernaturalism, which it depends, right? So I, I don't like those terms. So if I'm going to evaluate that argument, I'm going to have to look at it in terms of, 
idealism versus any sort of non-idealism, right? So I do agree. I admit that idealism is compatible with atheism, but I would say that there's other considerations to take into account. For example, you're going to have that arbitrary limits problem where if you're an idealist, but you're not a theist, well, then you're going to have to posit some fundamental bruteness to reality and that doing that is going to be a theoretical cost right, to the theory itself. And so that's going to decrease the prior probability. So I think my opinion, I don't know if, uh, if naturalism or theism is more intrinsically likely, at least if I look at it in that sense, right? Because when you build a theory, you have to preclude the other, right? But when you build the theory, you're going to have to say something and that's going to decrease the probabilities. Unless you build a theory that doesn't preclude the, the other, but then if you do that, then you're not really um, putting a view on the table, right? So that's all I got to say. Just so basically, just one, we have to build theories, right? And when you do that, that's going to be a cost, regardless of which side you are. And then number two, again, I just like to look at it in terms of uh, idealism versus any sort of non-idealism, just because I don't like the terms natural and supernatural. I think those terms need to just go away, <laughs> in my opinion. Those are just really, really bad terms. So uh, that's what I got to say in response. But again, I, I admit, I don't have a full opinion on, on that yet. Um, but yeah. I will say that's not surprising because, you know, I think that the, again, the, the, the supernatural natural distinction here implies some form of dualism. You know, there's, yeah. there's this ontologically distinct supernatural realm and this ontologically distinct natural realm. Mm -hmm. um, so your response there doesn't surprise me at all. I know that we're, yep. we're probably short on time at this point so i'll go ahead and and uh i think we're moving to q a now yeah so um i appreciate you guys um with the conversation and just being uh very nice and charitable um so if you guys are good with it i saved a little bit of time for like closing remarks so in case like you were biting to say like one last thing i don't know if you guys want to just take a couple of minutes and say like um if you have any like last thoughts we'll or anything before we go to q &A. Okay. we'll see how it goes with um, the q a so yeah so i was gonna say um there were a bunch of questions in the live chat as we were going, so we'll get through as many as we can. Um, but if you want to make sure your question's asked, put it in now, because um, I can go back through the live chat, but getting to the questions now would be the best. Um, if you do that, and then obviously, because you know it's YouTube, if it's a super chat, we'll do that first. Um, but um, closing remarks, does that sound good? Do you guys just do like brief remarks? Sounds good. The conversation? I'll go first. I, I guess I, since I went, went first, I'll, um, and I have those last two slides that re recap what I went over tonight. So I'll just go over those. Yeah, sure. All right. You should be shared there, Ben. Just take like five minutes or so. Sweet. Okay. So tonight, the thing that I really wanted to get through is that I think that the argument from consciousness um, can be formed in three broadly plausible ways. And so the first way was a likelihood way. Um, the idea that consciousness is more likely given theism um, than atheism. So that's what I just take the typical argument from consciousness to be that since because we observe consciousness, that just raises the likelihood of theism um, to atheism. Um, I think that there's a Bayesian formulation of this um, argument that is plausible. Um, the idea that consciousness makes it probable that theism is true um, or greater than at least 0.5. Um, and then an abductive version of the argument from consciousness, the idea that theist, theism is probably the best 
explanation of facts about consciousness, like the hard problem of consciousness. And so my objections to these uh, three ways of approaching the argument from consciousness are the first was that conscious experience does not favor either theism or atheism um, because our existence as conscious observers induces an observation selection effect. So it biases what we're going to observe. So the probability of observing consciousness is one, regardless of whether theism or atheism is true. Second objection was that there are particular observations about conscious experience that are more probable given atheism than theism. So this was my argument from physical minds. So I argued that there are facts from neuroscience, um, from genetics, and from morphology that are that raise the probability of atheism over um, theism. Um, the third objection I had was targeted towards that Bayesian inference. So the Bayesian inference wants to argue that um, theism isn't more, uh, or atheism isn't more problem th probable than theism, or even that theism is simpler than atheism. And I want to say that no, that's wrong. Um, uh, atheism has a greater intrinsic probability um, than theism. And uh, one of the reasons for thinking that is that the prior probability of theism cannot be greater than one third. Um, so the idea that there's a perfectly benevolent, perfectly malevolent and perfectly indifferent being are an equal footing. And so by the uh, principle of indifference, the, the prior probability can't be greater than one third. And then my last objection um, is that theism cannot be the best explanation for the hard problem of consciousness because neutral monism is. And it seems like we have resolved that disagreement. Neutral monism is the best solution to something like the hard problem of consciousness. But I wanted to argue that neutral monism is incompatible with theism. Um, there, theism has certain commitments that are just in far too much tension. With something like neutral monism, neutral monism in that there isn't something like after death. Um, it, we'd have to deny that there is a there is a distinction between an ontological distinction between us and God. Um, we have to deny that God created a world ontologically distinct from Himself. And I think that these costs are just too much, and that um, it's much more plausible to think that theism implies some form of substance dualism. So that's my argument um, tonight. Again. Those are my objections, I should say, to the argument from consci uh, consciousness. Awesome. Thanks, Ben. Um, Kyle, do you have any kind of closing remarks here? Um, yeah, I guess. Hold on. Let me share my screen real quick. Uh, let's see here. Okay, here it is. I don't think even professional debaters have, like, slides for, like, closing statements. So no, I, I, I did it. I didn't really do level. I'm just, yeah. So basically, um, just to recap um, the argument from Hold on. Yeah, this argument specifically. Um, I think Ben, I think our main, so two things I think we would disagree on, of, well, maybe if, uh, more things, but I think Ben would actually agree with at least stage one. I think he would just say that uh, neutral monism just follows from this. Um, and I was going to mention other objections to neutral monism, which is the mentalism suspicion and the problem of experience, but we didn't have time for that, so that's okay. And of course, stage two, which is... Um, just the arbitrary limits thing. Again, we didn't really discuss this much. We were focused on uh, what he mentioned earlier, which was just the disagreements about neutral monism, whether that's compatible with theism or not. Um, so again, I just just want to recap that um, I think our main disagreement is just, just more 
let's say uh not as big as <laughs> as i originally thought it would be so i'm um, that's pretty pretty good about that um but yeah i just want to just highlight again here that if you accept um this argument right here now i know some materialists might deny premise too but i know ben you probably wouldn't so but yeah i think either idealism would be true or maybe some kind of neutral monism um and then of course just stage two which is but i know ben would probably reject stage two simply because of the fact that he doesn't think that idealism or neutromonism are compatible, or he doesn't think that monism in general is compatible with theism, which um, that's probably our biggest disagreement, but I mean, it is what it is. So, um, but yeah, I'm glad that Ben, I'm, I'm glad that uh, we can at least agree to some extent that either idealism is true or neutromonism is true. So that's a really good, uh, we're on the same page, basically. Like, it doesn't seem like we disagree much when it comes to consciousness. Team monism. Wait, what? Yep, team monism. <laughs> yep. Yeah, team monism. To all the people who were hoping there was going to be two people screaming at each other for the like the last 90 minutes, I apologize. Um, not really. <laughs> this is the way these debates really should go. Um, yeah. um, so what we're going to do now is we're going to do Q&A for about 15 minutes here. Um, so get through as many questions as we can. Um, so... We'll start here with um, John Buck, which says, um, it's for Ben. It says, I've heard you say, Ben, that you are a physicalist, a neutral monist, and an idealist. Um, can you lay out how these, how you square these mutually exclusive positions with each other? So maybe just like what, like, would you just say like you're a neutral monist? Like what's your position with like philosophy of mind and such? Absolutely. Um, so I think this is a perfectly fair question because these terms and labels can be super confusing. Um, so... I'm a neutral monist um, in the sense that um, I believe that conscious experiences um, and personality are higher ordered um, biological functions like photosynthesis or digestion. Um, but uh, the only difference being that they have to appeal to this first person subjective experience. And so um, I think that mind and matter are two aspects of the same um, neutral substance. Um, I'm a physicalist because I believe that there are truths that can be described in entirely physical terms. And by physical terms, I mean third person terms, terms, you know, that include like matter and energy, um, charge, um, you know, the fund, the, the basic standard model of physics. I think that that's a true part of reality. I think that that is a foundational aspect of reality and that our complex conscious states um, are radically emergent from this underlying physical structure. Um, that's com entirely compatible with um, the view that some parts of reality will just have to be described in irreducibly subjective first-person terms. What it's like to be a bat is just not going to be able to be described in entirely physical terms. The term idealist in the philosophy of mind is the idea that um, the fundamental reality is mental and that the material world is somehow illusory. I'm not an idealist in the philosophy of mind. I'm a neutral monist, like I just said. Um, a physicalist in the sense that I'm a non-reductive physicalist. I don't think that you can reduce mind to matter. But I'm an idealist in an epistemological sense. So in epistemology, where we would talk about something like Kant's transcendental idealism or Hegel's 
absolute idealism. I'm an idealist in Hegel's sense of an absolute idealist. And the idea, the basic idea here is that there is a identity between knowing and being. That not only are mind and matter two sides of the same coin, but also being and knowing are two sides of the same coin. And so that um, this does away with problems that arise in Kant's transcendental idealism, this idea of things in themselves, this aspect of reality that we just can't know. I want to do away with that in, in, in epistemology. I think Hegel largely has it right in his theme that knowing and being are two sides of the same coin, that in epistemology, that's the key. Um, so that's how I square those, you know, mutually exclusive sounding um, labels. Cause I certainly agree that there are senses in which, you know, I just, I could not be a physicalist and an idealist in a philosophy of mind sense. If we understand those terms exclusively in the philosophy of mind, it doesn't make any sense. So it's uh, unfortunately the language games were established before I arrived on the scene. And this is, this is the least misleading way to characterize my views, but even still the least misleading way has these problems with it, unfortunately. Thanks, Ben. Um, a question here for Kyle, which says, um, "Termus one of your argument preclude agent causation. Um, how were God or agents, God or agents, an event?" Okay, yeah. So every event which has a cause, which is the same type. So okay, I, I guess I should clarify. Um, I think that agent causation is a subclass of just event causation. Although I, I don't like to make that. Dis I don't like to. So basically, this is the idea. So, agent causation is obviously has to be caused by a conscious subject, right? That's what it means to be an agent. However, the causal closure just that doesn't preclude agent causation, right? It just means that agent causation, whatever it is, is going to be a subclass of uh, that sort of event causation or the causal closure causation right and i guess just causal closure just in general in my mind just simply means that just entails monism right so if you accept causal closure then there can only be one type of causation or at least things can only cause each other the same substance can only cause itself in a certain way um so that's what i would say that basically that ultimately agent causation is just going to be um reduced to event causation um, now, again, I, I hold the libertarian free will, so I have to be a little careful when I say that. But I do think that um, when it comes to, like, free will and stuff, um, that it's going to be more of a compatibilist view. And I think Ben would probably would take the same view of free will anyway, so <laughs> uh, that's that's good to know. But, yeah, that's, that's what great. I would Thanks, say. Um, okay. A question from monistic idealism for Ben. Um, I think you mentioned this already before, Ben, but just to clarify, like, Ben, is the physical irreducible? Um, if so, what makes the physical irreducible? Uh, yeah, so I think that the physical is re irreducible, so I don't think that we can use purely mental terms to describe the physical. So I can't um, appeal to uh, mental qualities, uh, what it's likeness to have certain experiences in order to understand the duration of momentum. The conservation of momentum is something that um, does that just does not make reference to any sort of mental qualities like that. And so um, 
yeah, I just, I, uh, it's irreducible in that sense. Um, it just, you can't cash out these physical truths in entirely mental terms. Um, a question here, I believe, for Kyle from Jono, um, which says, like, how does a little baby get their consciousness? Does it slowly emerge, or is there a moment where it um, cool kick pops oh, into existence? Um, <laughs> what's God's role, oh, um, if there is one? Okay, yeah, so obviously, as an idealist, I would reject Quake. Craig's view, which is that just pops to existence. Um, so I think their consciousness, so the the subjective self, has is is there, right? It's just it's it's just there automatically, right? But then this this whole idea of what I call metaconsciousness or metacognition that develops over time. So the sense the the baby's idea of like you know being themselves, right? So this idea of ego. Obviously, I agree that that would evolve over time, that changes over time, you know, that develops over time. Um, that's what I would say. But the actual, the I, so the subjective consciousness itself is is always there. So it's not like it just popped into existence from nowhere, right? It's it's always been there. So that's what I would say. Yeah. Um, a really hard question for me, which is, is Kyle's cat further evidence against monistic physicalism? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I guess. Um, yeah. A question from John for Ben, which says, um, a very easy question here. What is the definition of naturalism, Ben? So uh, <laughs> uh, the way I understand metaphysical naturalism is the idea that the um, there is no supernatural realm. So that's a cheap uh, definition because you have to first understand supernaturalism. And so I won't get off that easily. I also add the additional thesis that the universe is causally closed. So it's the idea that the conservation of energy holds throughout the entire universe. And so that there's nothing extra um, supernatural that is causally adding its energy uh, to our net total energy. And so that if we were to observe the net total energy in the universe, that it would be constant and it would be zero. So I take that to be um, a sufficient understanding of naturalism because I think that's entirely incompatible with theism. And I think it's what most, it captures what uh, is most plausible about naturalism. Thanks, Ben. Um, a question here for Kyle, again from John Buck. Um, probably have time for, this might be the last or maybe one more. Um, it says, do subjects of experience come to exist as a type of like creation ex nihilo? If um, if not, have I always existed, like referring to like himself? Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is interesting um, because people, well, different ideals have different answers to this question. So obviously I don't, accept creation ex nihilo, but that only refers to the context of when God created the universe, right? Now, when it comes to us as subjects, right, um, there's this there's this weird idea, and it's going to sound weird, but basically the idea is that we come to existence in the same way that dream characters do, right? Where you have this one mind, and then it's sort of like fragments, or it I don't know, I'm not going to use... I'm going to try to avoid using those terms, but basically this idea of submergence where you get the whole and then you have these parts, right? So we as individual subjects are the parts, right? Um, we are kind of like the dream characters within God's mind, right? Now, I admit for clarity that I do not have a detailed, like, conceptual account of how that takes place. But it's not creation ex nihilo, so it's not the idea that, like, it just you know, God threw in a soul into a body or something like that. 
it's a little more complicated than that, right? So when we're talking about the creation of the I, of the self, I think it did it through a process of submergence, which is just the idea of getting the parts from a whole, from a whole or whole to its parts. Um, so that's what I would say. And then that again, that that only applies to the I. And then when it comes to the ego itself, like the the identity of the person, um, I think that evolves over time. So awesome. Well, we are about at the end of our time. Um, so Ben and Kyle, thank you so much for coming on. Um, their channels are linked down below. So really theology is like, is down there in Christian idealism. Um, so I think everyone that listening appreciated this debate. I learned a lot just listening to you guys and appreciate your um, charity and your intellect. So Ben, Kyle, thank you so much again for coming on and debating today. It was a lot of fun. Yep. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. And thank you everyone for tuning in as always. We appreciate it. And if you're new here, always encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, all that fun stuff. If you enjoy the channel, you can become a YouTube member or become a patron. That always helps. Um, but one last time, thank you guys. It's been a lot of fun. Um, wish everyone the best and have a good one, guys.